From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. We'll be joined live today by presidential candidate Chris Christie, who is trailing Donald Trump and other contenders in the Republican primary and is hoping for a breakthrough in New Hampshire. I'm Bill Nygut. Christie has his eyes on New Hampshire, but he believes the road to the nomination and the key to winning the White House runs through Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. We'll also discuss why some Republican leaders are looking at a full expansion of Medicaid. We'll ask the AJC's health care policy expert, Ariel Hart, why the conversation on full expansion appears to be changing. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein here with my colleagues, Bill Nygut and Patricia Murphy in our studio. And joining us on the line today is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, a Republican presidential candidate. Governor, thank you so much for joining us and welcome here to Georgia. Good morning. Good to be here in Georgia this morning. Well, Governor, I want to start out with something you said during one of your last visits here to Georgia, that any Republican candidate has to win our state to win the White House. So do you think the former president can carry Georgia? And why do you think you can succeed here if uh, he can't? I don't think he can win Georgia. I think he's proven that over and over again. He lost it in 2020. Um, he was instrumental in losing both Senate seats in 2021. And then uh, he selected the candidate and campaigned hard for a candidate who lost the Senate seat in 2022. So I don't know. And by the way, uh, vehemently opposed uh, Governor Brian Kemp um, supported Senator David Perdue in a in a primary campaign where you know Senator Perdue lost by you know seventy points. Um, so I don't know how much more losing Donald Trump can do in or has to do in Georgia to prove to to folks that he can't win here um, and he won't win here. And if he doesn't win the state of Georgia, there's no path for a Republican candidate for president who can't win the state of Georgia and. Look, I'm proud to be a Brian Kemp Republican. Um, you know, I was with Governor Kemp in 2018 um, when he ran the first time. I was I was with him in the primary in 2022, um, and obviously in the general election as well. Um, that's the kind of Republican that can win in the state of Georgia, uh, and that's the kind of Republican I am. Governor, uh, this is Bill Nygut. Uh, in fact, back uh, in Kemp's first run, you were one of the first national figures who uh, supported him and uh, uh, stuck with him throughout. But I want to talk about what may be a changing landscape in Georgia over 2022, um, when, as uh, you point out, um, by that time he'd lost the support of uh, Brian Kemp and and uh, others. Um Tell me what you think of the fact that CNN had a new Georgia poll just released yesterday, which showed that Trump has about a five-point lead here in the state. And maybe most interesting of all, 26 percent 
of people who said they did not cast ballots in the last election say they now favor Donald Trump uh, over uh, President Biden. What do you think accounts for that? And do you, in fact, think that perhaps Georgia is trending back toward being uh, redder than it is blue? Well, I never think it's gotten to the point where it's blue. I think it's uh, it's trended to purple. Um, and, and quite frankly, I think it's only trended to purple um, in the races that Donald Trump has been involved in. Um, you, you haven't seen it um, happen in races where uh, Trump was not involved. And look, a poll today, uh, you know, I, I was saying this to a group of people yesterday, you know, um, eight years ago right now, um, the Iowa caucuses were led by Ben Carson. Um, so, you know, I'm still waiting for the Ben Carson administration. So, you know, <laughs> the, the, the fact the fact is that, you know, polls that happen this far out, uh, I think are pretty meaningless. And in, in the end, what's going to matter in a general election in Georgia is having somebody who can appeal to independent suburban voters. We've seen that over and over again. Brian Kemp was able to appeal broadly to independent suburban voters um, and made his margin over Stacey Abrams significant in the general election, while at the same time, the Trump-backed candidate and Herschel Walker um, lost uh, the, the Senate seat. Uh, and there was a significant gap, as you know, over 200,000 votes on Election Day between those who voted for Brian Kemp and those who then went down ballot and voted for Herschel Walker. Um, those, are, those are results as opposed to polling, and it's undeniable. Um, that that's the problem uh, for for Donald Trump and for our party if we nominate him. And and, and, and even bigger than that, Georgia voters are smart. Um, they don't want a criminal to be uh, our nominee for president. And Donald Trump, uh, I am confident, is going to be convicted um, of felonies connected with January 6th before Election Day of 2024. And that will make him completely unelectable. In fact, um, he'll be in the situation where he'll be able, uh, on election day, not be able to vote for himself. Um, that's pretty unprecedented in, uh, in our country. Governor, it's Patricia Murphy. Uh, before uh, the campaign ever gets here to Georgia, of course, it st- starts in Iowa and New Hampshire. And we're getting news this morning that New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu will endorse Nikki Haley later today. I know you have spent an immense amount of time in New Hampshire, um, campaigned uh, and did a town hall recently with Governor Sununu. Have you heard from the governor about this endorsement? And what's your reaction to it, if that's the case? I have not. So uh, these are just news reports at the moment. Um, I don't know. But look, I've said this all along. Um, I would I would love to have Governor Sununu's endorsement. But if I don't have it, that means I have one less vote in New Hampshire. And it doesn't mean a whole lot more than that. Um, I've seen over time, I've been someone who's endorsement has been pursued frequently, um, going all the way back to the 2012 presidential race. And, and uh, I don't think voters vote based upon who you get endorsed by. Um, I think they vote based upon making their own judgment. Uh, and, and the fact is that um, no matter which way this goes, if Governor Sununu does decide to endorse Governor Haley, um, I consider Chris a friend. We agree on a lot of things. Um, we just won't agree on who to vote for in New Hampshire on January 23rd. And um, one less vote is um, is not dis- not all that disconcerting. We are here with Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor and Republican presidential candidate. Uh, governor, I want to ask you about another potential endorsement, uh, that of Governor Brian Kemp. Uh, you have gr- seen him a lot over the years. You've grown close with his family. Have you actively sought 
his endorsement. I mean, you just called yourself a Brian Kemp Republican after all. Yeah, no, look, uh, I, Governor Kemp knows that I would love to have his support. Um, uh, you know, we speak regularly. Um, usually I speak to him once every week or 10 days, kind of update him on what's going on on the campaign trail. And, and he's been very generous with his time as, as uh, the first lady. Um, and, and I, you know, I look forward to them uh, deciding what they want to do in this race. I don't think he's in any rush to make a decision. Uh, my sense is knowing Brian Kemp, he wants to see people vote um, before he's going to make any decision about what he wants to do with any endorsement. He wants to see how the voters react to you. Um, and, uh, and so I wouldn't expect an endorsement of anybody from governor Kemp, you know, for quite some time, probably not into 2020, not until into 2024 at some point. Governor, um, you were cheered on, uh, during the debate last week, um, got rave reviews from those who don't want Trump to be either the nominee or the next president. And there are Democrats, independents, as well as anti-Trump Republicans who have been uh, very energized by your going after Trump as openly as you have, just in, you know, in contrast to all of the other Republican candidates, as you've pointed out at any number of occasions. Given that, I'm interested in how you reflect upon 2016, when you, of course, uh, were adamantly opposed to Donald Trump early on. You said he was unfit to be president. And then I think you surprised a great many people when you endorsed him uh, rather early after he had secured the nomination. You said you were proud to be standing with him. Um, you uh, said basically that he's a real talent. Um, then there are there were questions about whether you thought you would be named attorney general. That didn't happen. So I'm wondering how all that play. You think about that. You reflect on that after having watched the Trump administration, but recognizing that in 2016, to some extent, you helped propel him further on the path to becoming president. Well, look. At that point, it was a choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Um, and I didn't want Hillary Clinton to be president of the United States. And so let's be clear, Donald Trump was not my first choice for president. I was. Um, but uh, that didn't work out. And when it didn't um, in this country, uh, you don't always get to vote for who you want to vote for. You have to decide who to vote for between who's left. And it was Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And my view was, and still is, that Hillary Clinton would have been a terrible president of the United States. Um, Donald Trump uh, did some good things during his presidency, but he also divided this country horribly, um, and on election night to me, and that's when I really made my split from him, was election night of 2020 when he said the election was stolen, when there was no evidence to prove that fact. And in fact, to this day, there's no evidence to prove it. When you undercut our democracy and you convince millions of Americans unjustly that the election was stolen just because your own ego is bruised and can't take the fact that sometimes in politics you win and sometimes you lose, well, that's damage that's been done to the country, and I think we've seen it manifest itself over time, over these last three years. That's just unacceptable. And his conduct since he's left office, uh, in my view, has been disqualifying. So when I look back on it, I did the best I could to try to make him the best candidate and the best president I could make him. Um, and it didn't work out. Uh, but I don't, in the end, um, have any regrets about opposing Hillary Clinton. But I would never, you know, would never support Donald Trump. 
Governor, on the debate stage last week, you said that it's difficult to be the only person on the stage telling the truth. I think a big part of that is um, what you've been saying about the election, that it was not stolen. But after being in front of so many Republican audiences over the last several months, do you sense that a majority of Republicans want the truth? Oh, listen, I I do think that they want the truth. I, I think that a majority of Republicans aren't even paying attention yet. Um, you know, folks like us are are consumed with this um, and are and are really, really driven to trying to get all the information we can. You know, uh, regular folks um, who are not involved in politics on a day to day basis um, are not sitting here obsessed about a race that still won't begin for another five weeks with people voting. Um, and for folks in Georgia, you know, they're looking at a few months before they're going to have to cast a vote. So, you know, I just think that. I think Republicans do want the truth. Um, I think that the truth matters. And and I think that as leaders, we have an obligation, an absolute obligation to tell the truth um, about what's going on here. And, you know, Donald Trump continues to attack me um, because I'm the only one who will go after him. And, and, I, and I, I'm confused by the, 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 the strategy of both Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis um, because they're not running against Donald Trump. And the guy is 25, 30 points ahead in every poll that you see. So to the extent that you care about what those polls say, you should be running against the person who you have to beat. Instead, they spend time beating each other up, um, which I think is a waste of time and a waste of money. And quite frankly, they're not showing the courage you need to show to actually take on the front runner. And if they won't do it now, why would they think, why would we think they would do it, you know, a month from now or two months from now? It seems to me, that both of, them, both of them may be more concerned with 2028 than they are with 2024. We're here with Governor Chris Christie, and Governor, that's something you mentioned on the debate stage in Tuscaloosa uh, last week. I, I do want to uh, get to something you alluded to earlier as well. You're one of the few Republican officials who has called the Fulton County indictment against Donald Trump and his allies valid and legitimate. Uh, why is that? Why should this be something that We've seen poll after poll after poll, seeing seeing a plurality, if not a majority of Republican voters see this as a politicized prosecution. Why should voters tune into this and see it uh, as a valid and legitimate case? Well, look, what I said was, um, to be complete about my answer on Fulton County, mm-hmm. is that I think the underlying facts are absolutely legitimate. If I were making the decision, I would not have indicted Donald Trump in Fulton County personally because he had already been indicted federally for the same conduct. And so to me, it's duplicative. And I wouldn't have done that. And I think it shows there was a lack of coordination and or cooperation between uh, the Fulton County DA and special counsel Jack Smith. But if you're asking me, is the underlying conduct one that uh, is criminal? I believe it is. Um, And I believe that'll be proven in the January 6th trial, which is set to start sometime this spring. Um, so in that sense, I, you know, I feel very strongly about the conduct being disqualifying for him. Um, and, but I wouldn't have brought the case against him against everybody else. I think absolutely valid because remember in, in the federal case, um, there were no charges brought against anyone, but Donald Trump, um, in that case. And so I think the Fulton County DA bringing the charges against the other people that she found to be culpable, um, and, and believe she has evidence beyond a reasonable doubt perfectly appropriate. I think the indictment of Donald Trump in Atlanta 
you know, was duplicative given that he had already been indicted federally. Governor, let me follow up on that, if I may. Um, There are still, including Donald Trump, uh, 15 defendants in that election conspiracy case. Based on what you're saying, um, that many of the defendants do deserve to be charged in Fulton County, do you think to some extent that by indicting Donald Trump, uh, Fonnie Willis may have weakened this conspiracy case? And, and that it, it, in, um, in the way it moves forward, the fact that uh, you believe he may, shouldn't have been a defendant in this case, it may create problems for the prosecution. I mean, you've been a federal prosecutor. You know how these things work. Yeah, no, look, what I would have preferred to see happen was that there be coordination between the, uh, the, U, the, uh, the United States Department of Justice and Fonnie Willis. Um, and that they decide who's going to take the lead on these kind of things. That's the way it normally happens. I don't know why it didn't happen that way here, but when I was U.S. attorney in New Jersey running the fifth largest office in the country, um, you know, that's what we would have done. We would have coordinated with our local partners and decided who's going to proceed. Now, does it weaken the case? I don't think it weakens the case um, at all. I think it just, when people look at it, when you're talking about a discussion of fairness or unfairness, you know, to be indicted um, in two different jurisdictions for essentially the same conduct, I think will strike people wrong. And that's what strikes me wrong about it. Um, but it's not about the underlying facts. And I don't think that it will make the case weaker when it goes to trial. I just think when you look at the public perception of the way we make these decisions, it would have been better if only one of them would have proceeded rather than both. Uh, Governor, to change the subject a little bit, um, we've noticed on multiple debate stages that you and Nikki Haley and others have really come to blows with Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, Can you tell us what is going on either behind the scenes or are we all just seeing it? There is an amount of antipathy against (laughs) Ramaswamy that is impossible to ignore. And it raises a lot of questions about what y'all know that other voters may not know. I I don't think it's any any more any more difficult than what you actually see on the screen. Yeah. He's, he's, he's an obnoxious blowhard, as I said the other night. He's completely unqualified to be president of the United States. Um, he's there as Donald Trump's wingman, um, you know, playing support role for Donald Trump since he doesn't have the courage to get on the debate stage. Um, so Ramaswamy's playing the role of, you know, a, a younger uh, Donald Trump on that stage. And, and I think... You know, when for me the other night, when, you know, when someone on that stage compares Nikki Haley's intellect to the intellect of his three year old son and compares it unfavorably, you know, that's just ridiculous. And I look, I don't want Nikki to be president. Um, I, you know, intend to defeat her. But what I'll tell you is that um, I'm not going to treat her with disrespect. And that's treating her with disrespect. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate, it's immature, and it comes from, you know, his, uh, you know, his inability to understand um, or show any respect for the service that, you know, Nikki has given over time, as have I and Ron DeSantis. And so, you know, um, I, that's why I don't take him seriously. And, and I think the antipathy you see, as you characterized it from everybody on the stage, um, is born of, of his own conduct and nothing more than that. Governor, we know you've got a jet, but before you go, before we take a quick break, I, I want to ask you this. Are, are you surprised in a state like Georgia 
that Donald Trump still remains popular with such a large segment of the uh, electorate here, the Republican electorate, even after he went to war with Republican leaders? And and who are your main supporters here in Georgia? Who, who are the who are the Republicans you look to for advice here in, in the state? Well, look, you know, one beside obviously Governor Kemp being a source of advice and counsel regularly, and he is, and so is Marty, and and I'm very Mary Pat and I are both, you know, really happy that we have them as friends and 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 and, and folks who are willing to give advice. Um, I was very close to the late Speaker Ralston, um, and he was with me in 2016, mm-hmm. um, and we continued to work together. And many of the people who supported Speaker Ralston. Folks like Matt Hatchett and others have been people who have been, you know, great at giving advice and giving me direction here um, in the in the state of Georgia. And I appreciate, uh, you know, I appreciate their advice and guidance. And in fact, just going through, you know, Fulton, going through the Atlanta airport, um, I, I ran into um, on the train heading to baggage claim. I ran into Speaker Ralston's son-in-law, and you know, it reminded me again how much we miss him. And how much Georgia misses him um, because he was a uniter and somebody who got things done in the House here in Georgia and and not somebody who was divisive. And, uh, you know, as far as the, the support for Donald Trump, I think that support will last as long as as Donald Trump um, continues to be perceived as someone who's inevitable to win. Um, and as soon as he has a rough moment in Iowa or in New Hampshire um, or in South Carolina early. I think that those numbers will decrease significantly. Um, he has the advantage of essentially being the incumbent in this race, and a lot of advantages come along with that. Uh, and But I think that once people really are focusing and voting and they see the results, I think it's going to be a much, much tougher race for Donald Trump than the way it appears right now. Governor, we know you have to go, but thank you so much for joining us. We so appreciate it. Look, I appreciate the time. Um, I, I love this state, and, you know, um, I love the fact that Governor Kemp um, is leading it in a way that is conservative and sensible. Uh, and that's where our party has to get back to, um, stopping the divisiveness, stopping the self-centeredness. Uh, the thing I love about Governor Kemp the most is that he's always put Georgians first, whether it was in his positions in the executive branch or when he was in the state legislature. And uh, that should be a model for everybody who gets into public service, not only here in Georgia, but around the country. Well, thank you, Governor. And just ahead, we'll unpack our conversation with Chris Christie and dive deeper into the 2024 race. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. It's a jolt of all the important news scoops and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. I'm here in studio with Bill Nygut and Patricia Murphy. We just got off the line with former New Jersey governor, Chris Christie, a presidential candidate. Guys, I'm curious about your takeaways. Patricia, he mentioned 
a Brian Kemp Republican several times. He also mentioned yep. Governor Brian Kemp's name several times. Uh, obviously, he sought Governor Kemp's endorsement. He said he's not likely to hear any decision until until early next year. Uh, but he is basically saying he is modeling his presidency in part, at least, on Governor Kemp's leadership here in Georgia. Or he's certainly modeling his campaign his after Governor Kemp's, bid, I say, because yeah. Governor Kemp, Governor campaign, really, <laughs> Governor Kemp's campaign in 2022 was just the model of how to do it in a post-Trump world of needing to still appeal to Donald Trump supporters enough to have them support you also um, without alienating them, but also by not agreeing with everything that Donald Trump said, especially the most egregious things. Um, and it's very clear why uh, why. Christie is doing that. If you want to get campaign advice from one person in the state for a GOP primary, Governor Kemp's the person to do it. Yeah, but the problem, of course, is that one of the ways that Governor Kemp succeeded, as he did in 2022, was that uh, he was maybe mildly critical here and there of Donald Trump, but he mostly kept his distance from Trump. Uh, Chris Christie, unfortunately, isn't in a similar position. Well, Trump is also on his ballot, which Kim <laughs> well, did not I, uh, have to do No, either. I understand. That's my, But that's my point. I mean, yes. um, so I think that's an interesting difference right there. But of course, Chris Christie is also said, at least as of September, he told the New York Times that if he doesn't do well in New Hampshire, I don't know whether that means placing in the top three, he's not going to stay in the race. So it may be a moot point as to whether he would ever win the endorsement of Brian Kemp after uh, New Hampshire. Yeah, but Georgia, when you asked him that question about Governor Sununu and his uh, expected endorsement of Nikki Haley, you heard Governor Christie say, look, it's just one vote, it's just one person, it's just one voice. But we do know how important um, those voices are in states. We're not, we, it's never entirely sure to see how much an endorsement swings an election, but certainly there are many Republicans, just as in Georgia, many Republicans are looking at Governor Kemp. In New Hampshire, many Republicans are look, looking at Governor Sununu as sort of a guide. Oh, that's exactly right. Because um, especially because New Hampshire is a smaller state, it's a small electorate. So many people know Governor Sununu personally. They do value his opinion. And he has been somebody who's been um, uniquely successful. Now, he also chose not to run for president because I think he saw what a difficult path ahead it would be for a Republican like him who does not support Donald Trump. So it really was between Nikki Haley and Chris Christie. And as much as, yes, it's just it's just one vote. It is a blow to Christie because he would so much have liked to have had that endorsement because he was campaigning out with Sununu as recently as last week. Bill, I'm also interested in what Governor Christie said about the ongoing election interference trial here in Georgia. He said he wouldn't brought the case because he would let it to the he would have left it to the feds. He's a former federal prosecutor, yeah. so that's not a surprise. But he said it was, you know, he said it was a valid the the facts of the case were valid. And here's a takeaway quote he said. He said, Georgia voters are smart. They don't want a criminal to be president. That's a part of his message around the nation. But here in Georgia, of course, the home of that trial, uh, he hopes it will resonate more with Republican voters. I think that uh, that's right. I think that's in many ways. Well, we'll see. We don't know if Donald Trump is uh, convicted in either Washington or here in Georgia. We'll see how that plays with the Republicans who have stuck with him through thick and thin. But the question that I was interested in hearing him respond to when he said he wouldn't have indicted him here is this notion that with Trump as kind of the lead defendant in that conspiracy, how much more difficult is it going to be first to seat a jury and then um, persuading jurors that Trump himself is guilty? Um, they may see all many of the other 
defendants in that trial as having committed criminal offenses. Trump's a bit a different story. Why is it a different story? It's just such a historic thing to be asking of a jury to say, we need you to evaluate the facts of this case. And we also need you to be willing to decide guilty or innocent of somebody who could by then be a sitting president of the United States. It's such uncharted territory. Yeah. It, it there's There's no playbook for this, obviously. Yeah. And we still don't even have a started trial. We don't have a, a trial date yet either. You know, we have Fannie Willis, the DA of Fulton County, um, kind of putting out a timeline that could be as early as August. But we also have Donald Trump's attorney saying this in itself would be election interference by having a trial so close to the November well, election. He, I'd love to hear the opinion of a constitutional law professor. I certainly don't know the law well enough. But, you know, we now know that the Supreme Court has agreed to take an expedited a, a case on whether or not Donald Trump is exempt for, from a prosecution in the Washington case. Now, if for some reason the U.S. Supreme Court says, yes, we agree with Trump and his attorneys that the conduct that he uh, uh, is being accused of, which happened during his presidency, means he's immune from prosecution, I have no idea what that does to the Fulton County case other than lead to many new lawsuits that will eventually go up to the Supreme Court again. Yeah. And these are all questions, you know, that somebody like Chris Christie can't answer, but he right. can certainly raise them. And he is the only one raising them out there on the campaign trail. And he said uh, recently that he's the cavalry. He's the cavalry to come save Republican voters from this um, eventuality of having a uh, former president who cannot be a president if he's been elected or if he's been uh, jailed. However, I asked him and I don't know what the answer is. Do Republican voters really want to know that? Do they care? Do they want a truth teller? Like yeah. Do they want a truth teller? It, it doesn't feel like the majority of Republican voters want that version of the truth. They seem to be very attracted to Donald Trump's version of the truth, even here in Georgia, where it all happened, where it all went down and where he's being uh, where he's being prosecuted. Yeah, and Chris Christie's in the single digits in most polls. He was, you know, we heard boos on the debate stage in Tuscaloosa last week when he brought up this very yeah. issue. Um, but he also told you again today, Patricia, he said, I'm confused by the strategy of Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. They're not running against Donald Trump. Usually when we interview a candidate, you know, and we only ask about his opponent, they get a little upset. Chris Christie, uh, Patricia, is more than happy to talk about <laughs> Donald Trump because he sees there there is no other reason, there is no other main factor in this race other than Donald Trump. Well, and that's his entire reason for running is to keep Donald Trump from being the president. Obviously, he wants to be the president as well. Um, but when he said he's the cavalry, that was a part of a question of why are you running? And he said it is because Donald Trump cannot and will not be the president again. You know, there are a handful of political leaders out there, and I think Chris Christie certainly is one, who are really good at how they make their points. He's incredibly articulate in the way he goes after Donald Trump, in the way in which he tries to hold accountable the other Republican candidates uh, for president. He showed that in the debate the other night. Interestingly enough, Chris Sununu is another one of those political leaders who's very, very good at presenting his opinions. And and there's a way and, and so I think the one thing we have to give Christie credit for is um just being a, a man who uh he must have been a really good federal prosecutor because he really knows how to get his points across. 
Well, he did convict Jared Kushner's father in New Jersey, so we know of one conviction that he got that he's still paying for. Um, But Bill, I thought it was so interesting when you asked him about endorsing Donald Trump in 2016. And Mm -hmm. I remember the day he endorsed, it was in February of 2016. It was very early in the process. He was the first big name to come out for Trump. And it did make a difference. Now, that's not why all those Trump voters supported him, but it did start to give this air of uh, inevitability and legitimacy um, to see somebody like Chris Christie endorsing him. And he said to you, you know, well, first of all, I didn't want Hillary Clinton to be the president. I'd be interested to know if he could go back and let Hillary Clinton or or have Hillary Clinton be the president if he would what he would think in retrospect. But he also said, I did the best I could. Yeah, which I thought was an interesting comment. I tried to bring him along, whatever. But I think the reality, Greg, is that when Donald Trump decided that Chris Christie was not going to be his attorney general, that began something of a turn in Christie's thinking about Trump, which only continued as he watched his performance in the White House. Yeah, we got to take a quick break. But before we go out to our break, I do want to mention one last thing about that interview. Bill, it was really interesting to hear the governor talk about some of his Georgia supporters. Uh, the late Speaker David Ralston, we know, was very close to him. David Ralston was one of his first major endorsements in the national race, but also here in Georgia. Uh, Matt Patchett, a Republican leader in the Georgia legislature. And again and again, he kept on talking about Governor Kemp. Uh, he's I, I, He was clearly hoping that Governor Kemp tunes into this interview uh, because obviously Governor Kemp's endorsement would, 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 would be a game changer for his campaign here in Georgia. Don't you suspect that if you're a Republican Christie supporter in Georgia— you're kind of on a lonely island right now. <laughs> It'd be interesting to try to uh, see that. Yeah. Okay, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll discuss why Georgia could be inching toward expanding Medicaid. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to the AJC's Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein here in the studio with Patricia Murphy and Bill Nygut. Okay, with less than a month until the legislative session begins, Republicans are signaling that they could move towards expanding Medicaid next year after more than a decade of debate. AJC reporter Ariel Hart brings us up to speed on the 300,000 Georgias who could be insured if that program is expanded. Ariel, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. So, Ariel, I want to give our listeners some backstory on Ariel Hart, because for the last decade or so, you've covered the ins and outs of the Medicaid debate in Georgia. You've worked long hours, visited hospitals, interviewed scores, dozens, maybe hundreds of healthcare professionals and policy analysts. You've scheduled vacations around major moments in this debate. And now there's a <laughs> chance of a potential Medicaid breakthrough this coming year. So so tell us, you've covered this this, this long. What What's changing? What's changed? Well, it, uh- that's an interesting way of describing. Yeah. Um, the fascinating thing is, so I, I think that for many, many years, if you had uh, injected truth serum into some leading Republican um, legislators, they would have said, you know, we don't love this um, 
this Medicaid expansion program, but it does have advantages for the state. And given a bunch of bad options, we should do this. But they politically couldn't. What's changing now is that for the very first time, um, some uh, some of those very top ranking Republicans are giving Medicaid expansion a hearing, full Medicaid expansion. Well, but, but the question, Ariel, is to what extent? We know that we, uh, we all watched last session when Burke Jones uh, tried to overturn certificates of need. Uh, presumably, among other things, there were, he had some interest in a hospital down um, in middle Georgia that couldn't be built without a certificate of need. And now the question, be, he, he lost on that issue, but the question becomes, to what extent is a trade-off between eliminating certificates of need for full expansion of Medicaid playing a role in all of this? Exactly. And and that's that's the deal that's on the table. And I guess we should give a little kind of um, explainer of what certificate of need is. Certificate of need is this regulation that is uh, basically protects hospitals. It protects hospitals from competition by businesses that would they would they say would cherry pick their best paying customers, maybe their only paying customers, open up, say, you know, an orthopedic clinic. And then the hospital would be left with the non-paying emergency room customers and they would go under. So, you know, that's a regulation. Republicans are very skeptical of that regulation. And there has been um, a very strong movement to repeal that regulation, the, the protection of hospitals called certificate of need for years and years in Georgia. And so, yeah, you've got um, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, the head of the Senate, who's that's a big deal for him, repealing certificate of need. He has family connections to a, um, a real estate development um, that might be connected to the possible development of a new hospital. And that hospital would uh, need to have certificate of need repealed in order to be built. You've got a whole bunch of other leaders in the Senate and in the House who really would love to see certificate of need repealed for all kinds of reasons. So what happened, um, what we saw that was just kind of extraordinary um, this year, just last month on the House side is... Here we were having yet another, yet another study committee on certificate of need, reform, repeal, modernization, whatever you want to call it. It was over on the House side, and out of nowhere, the agenda comes up, and every single speaker is in the certificate of need committee talking about Medicaid expansion. And so it was like, what's up with this? And the calls like the started signal. being made. Yeah, it was quite a signal. And so, you know, I showed up and I was the only reporter there because study committees are often snoozers. And <laughs> um, I'm sitting there watching the presentations and who is there? But three people have uh, flown in, driven in, who were instrumental in the Arkansas Medicaid expansion and they and hands down, the star presentation was Senator Missy Irvin from Arkansas, who's been a leader in Medicaid expansion there. She is one heck of a communicator. And she talked about very, very clearly, very candidly about what Medicaid expansion has done for Arkansas and what it hasn't done. 
And, you know, up, uh, you know, then we get uh, word from the chairman that um, House Speaker John Burns is sitting there and I pop up to take his photograph. And wouldn't you know it, just as I pop up to take his photograph, he leans over and shakes Missy Irvin's hand. <laughs> So, you know, it was all this kabuki theater. Nobody would say a word afterwards. They're just there. John Burns, oh, he just wanted to see what the committee was looking at. But it was an unmistakable message. Ariel, let's talk a little bit about what this Medicaid expansion might look like. We have seen Governor Kemp propose and enact a very limited Medicaid expansion that enrolled, um, I think, less than 5,000 uh, people. Uh, Democrats talk about a full Medicaid expansion through Obamacare that would ensure many, many more uninsured Georgians. What is this version of Medicare and would it satisfy Democrats, do you think, who are looking for what they call real Medicaid expansion? Right. Um, so uh, let's just talk about Medicaid expansion is aimed at the hundreds of thousands of people in Georgia who don't have health insurance because they make too little money. I know that that sounds crazy, but the Affordable Care Act, when it was enacted, thought, it, you know, they cobbled together this um, bunch of policies that allegedly would ensure everybody uh, in the country. And the Supreme Court struck down the mandatory expansion of Medicaid to all poor people who make below the poverty level or below 138 percent of the poverty level. So that left it up to states. And each state has decided on its own whether to expand Medicaid to all of its uninsured poor. In Georgia, we have not done that. Medicaid uh, covers all children. It does not cover working age adults. And um, advocates are hasty to tell you that not every working age adult can work. There's a ton of mentally ill people. There are disabled people who are routinely denied disability status by the federal government. Um, there's a whole host of reasons why people don't end up on Medicaid. And in fact, you know, we've got hundreds of thousands by anyone's measure. And Georgia is the third worst insured state in the um, nation. So there are different ways of going about that. Um, full Medicaid expansion simply says, OK, we're going to offer Medicaid to everybody below the poverty level, um, below just above the poverty level. And when you do that, you get massive subsidies from the federal government. Uh, in fact, uh, that's been estimated for Georgia, it would be about $1.3 billion a year that would go into the healthcare system, paying rural hospitals, uh, poorer hospitals, every healthcare provider um, to uh, whenever they see one of these indigent patients. Georgia has done something different. Georgia has done a um, waiver. Uh, that would ensure people who can file paperwork saying that they have worked or uh, gone to school, specific activities. And that has not worked out well so far. It's only been open for about four or five months, but they've been um, insured less than 2,000 people. Arkansas did something in the middle, but it ended up insuring almost all its poor and in a very innovative way. Patricia, I want to ask you about something that Ariel mentioned earlier, this kabuki theater. Because it was really interesting. I mean, that was a, a standout moment that Ariel mentioned when the House Speaker John Byrne showed up, um, signal, signaling that the House leadership could maybe get behind this idea. But we know that under the Gold Dome, it takes more than two to tango. In fact, it takes a lot more than two to, to tango. And even if House leaders are behind this, you know, you, you've then got to get 
The Senate on board, which tends to be even more conservative than the House, as much as Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones might like certificate of need, this whole overhaul to, to happen, uh, it's still going to be hard to sell any sort of expansion to conservative Republicans. And then you also need Governor Brian Kemp. He passed a law, or governor, uh, lawmakers passed a law back in 2014 saying the legislature has to approve an expansion, but it still has to go to the governor's office to sign off on it. It can't be a unilateral decision anymore. And I haven't heard the governor's office saying no to this idea, but I also haven't heard them saying yes to this idea. It takes more than two to tango, but it takes one governor to sign Medicaid expansion. <laughs> and that's the person they need to get. But I do think, and Aaron mentioned this earlier, behind the scenes, many, many Republicans say, why can't we just pass Medicaid expansion? There would be an enormous payout to the state as a result. And then they could get a number of people insured um, for things that they know their own local ERs are having to deal with on a daily basis um, for no reimbursement. And so it's put... Um, um, lots and lots of healthcare providers in a bind, and Republicans would love to find a way to solve this problem without officially calling it Obamacare Medicaid expansion, um, but while also getting enough Democrats to sign off on it to say, yes, this is a real solution to a real problem. That would be a politically a humongous win for Republicans. Ariel, I know we're uh, close to running out of time, but a quick question for you. For years, Republicans have said the reason they don't want a full expansion of Medicaid is that while, yes, the federal government picks up the tab for, what, 95 percent plus of the cost, they worry that eventually it will be the state that will be left with the burden. To what extent, given your vast research, is there anything to that argument, or is this just another part of the culture wars that Republicans continue to fight? You know, I mean, you can't ignore that this whole idea of Medicaid expansion was born under President Obama, part of the quote-unquote Obamacare law. And the, there were Tea Party protests. There was the threat of shutdown for the first time. Um, and so, you know, you might have been able to argue back then that we don't know if that federal 90 percent subsidy is going to keep coming through. But it's been 10 years. They keep paying. And as some of the advocates say, you know, if they stop paying, then that's a big crisis nationwide. And we all have to grind to a halt and figure out what to do. Um, and I should note that while Governor Christie was talking, the uh, the Senate, the the House report on certificate of need modernization came out summarizing their recommendations. They don't have recommendations. They summarized everything they listened to. And out of like 20 some rec uh, points, the second to last was Medicaid expansion. Oh, well, Ariel, wow. thank you so much for joining us. And of course, there's other wrinkles in this debate, too, because former President Donald Trump has now called for the repeal of Obamacare. So uh, this will this will also continue to be an issue in the 2024 race. Thanks so much for spending time with us today on Politically Georgia. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every single afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. 
Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.